Welcome to The Middle Way. I'm Dr. Matthew Goodman, a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Southern California. This podcast is about bridging the divide between human beings and discovering innovative and practical solutions to the world's problems based on the principles of interconnectedness, common humanity, and radical compassion. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to The Middle Way, or if it's your first time here, thank you for joining us. One of the goals of this podcast is to provide a balanced and fair take on social issues. It recognizes that we can each get caught up in our individual identities and beliefs. As a fractured nation and society, we might say that the beliefs on my side are simply shadows of the beliefs on the other side. In using this metaphor, we could say that we each stand in each other's light, the light of which is ultimately big enough to embrace the whole spectrum of our interconnected humanity and the contradictory belief systems inside of it. We could all benefit from bringing ourselves back down to earth and away from the intoxication of our identities and beliefs. One of the most fraught and politically charged issues in our society today is related to gender, particularly the way that we teach about it in schools and the way we approach gender dysphoria in medicine. Florida and Texas have infamously introduced bills recently strictly targeting these issues in education and medicine. Where do you stand on these issues? What do you know about topics like gender-affirming medicine. Most of us, unless we're entrenched in this work or personally affected somehow, don't know a whole lot about gender-affirming care, for example. We might find ourselves having to swiftly make a decision about what side we're on. Are we for or against it? Are we on team Democrat or Republican? And we may not voice any concerns or questions or doubts or point to any of the nuances on these topics because we might be labeled a transphobe or perceived negatively in some other way, maybe then finding ourselves cast into the bucket of so-called deplorables. But these issues are not cut and dry. They're complex, they contain nuance, and we have to, at some point, have a candid and kind and complicated conversation about them. That's the only way we can arrive at the best answer, which ultimately serves the groups that we're trying to protect. With this in mind, it is a very special treat to have on the podcast today, Mr. Jesse Single. If you know Jesse's work, maybe you've heard him on some of my favorite podcasts, such as Sam Harris or Barry Weiss, he probably needs no introduction. But if you don't know Jesse, he's a journalist who has written for New York Magazine, The New York Times, and The Atlantic, amongst other publications. And he's the author of The Quick Fix, Why Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. He writes a popular newsletter on Substack called Single Minded, which I'll link to in the show notes, and co-hosts the fantastically poignant 
and popular podcast, Blocked and Reported, with Katie Herzog. Jesse's written a bit on the topic of transgender youth in gender-affirming care. I invited Jesse on the show after he published an article on his Substack critiquing a recent scientific paper that seemed to tout the benefits of gender-affirming interventions like puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones for transgender youth. Although as we're here in the podcast, the claims of this study can be questioned. Not even 24 hours after reading Jesse's article, I was sitting in a lecture where the presenter seemed to plainly allude to the robustness of research supporting these interventions for children and adolescents' mental health, along with a number of other unsettling recommendations for our learners. And this seemed to contradict at least the flawed scientific article that Jesse was referring to, if not the broader literature. The bottom line here is that we don't have overwhelming evidence by any means that these interventions by themselves dramatically improve youth's mental health, as even scientists might like to claim. Yet we can all feel the pull or the desire or the want to support this idea because it seems like the right thing to do or because we support the health and the well-being and the thriving of trans people. Or maybe we're just echoing what we've already heard from other people, even physicians and scientists. My concern here is that while we're trying to protect and serve a particular population, we may end up doing unintentional harm in some cases due to unnecessary polarization. That's biasing a clear outlook and approach to these complex issues. To be clear, I'm not advocating for what bills such as the ones in Texas and Florida advocate for. To suggest that parents who are trying to do the best for their children are guilty of child abuse and should be reported is sickening and disturbing beyond words. I'm not saying that we need to stop this care either. I'm saying that we might ultimately best served if we didn't become so polarized on these topics. And the only way to do that is to actually listen to one another and have these types of conversations. The foundation of having these conversations, even though they're tough and complicated and can look a certain way, can still be compassion. That can still be the foundation of these conversations, even if it reflects otherwise in the minds of mainstream belief and opinion. We can still go against a mainstream narrative and be exceptionally compassionate at the same time. Something that's not woke does not mean that it's not empathic. The middle way approach is trying to see the common humanity in the other person, in the other side, perhaps to learn something new about them or ourselves, which ultimately will allow the truth to be sharpened for both of us. And this requires being able at least temporarily to loosen our grip on our identities. If we can have compassion for the other side and they for us, we have a better chance of coming to the actual principles and policies and behaviors that will benefit the whole. Actions that, at the end of the day, benefit 
the groups that we're desperately trying to protect and serve. Therefore, I think that having sympathy for people on the other side of our argument, whatever it is, is compassionate to the marginalized groups that we're trying to protect. Anyways, that was a long rant, but what you can look forward to in this episode is Jesse breaking down the scientific article that he critiques in his piece, including the methodological issues and the problem more broadly of science being pressured by politics, which we see happening more and more. Jesse speculates on the psychological factors that are driving polarization and driving some of these trends. We talk about his uh, investigation and reporting on detransitioners and why maybe you've never heard anything about this. We talk about the Florida and Texas bills. Jesse shares why he struggles with the argument that backlash is to blame for these bills, which is an argument that I'm um, more sympathetic to. And finally, Jesse shares why he's pessimistic about our future, but why what he calls pluralistic ignorance can help us. Okay, I have to say here, I was quite nervous to do this podcast, mainly because I was talking to Jesse Single, and I have a lot of respect for him. You'll hear a couple of sound glitches. So other than the sound glitches and the nervous Nelly, aka me, asking the questions on the other side, I think this is a provocative and informative episode, and I hope you enjoy. All right. So Jesse, thank you so much for being here on the Middleway podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to get into a conversation today about the um, kind of infusion of politics into science. Um, and I thought you would be a great person to do that. But let me set a bit of, of context here for our listeners. You had published um, a, an article um, a few days ago. It was critiquing a, a study that was done by researchers um, at the University of Washington on gender-affirming medicine and mental health outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe what the um, article was stating and then maybe what some of the critiques were or what you um, actually found in the article? Yeah, this was um, published in uh, JAMA Network Open, which is in the Journal of the American Medical Association you know, network of publications. Um, uh, the press release they sent out, the headline read, gender affirming care dramatically reduces depression for transgender teens. Just read one sentence from the uh, press release itself. UW Medicine, that's University of Washington, uh, researchers recently found that gender affirming care for transgender and non-binary adolescents caused rates of depression to plummet. So this is a study where they basically took a... Um, group of kids who came through a gender clinic in Seattle. They took sort of a consecutive cohort and they tried to track the mental health over time of, you know, as many of them as possible, um, which is exactly the sort of research we should be doing. And they tracked them as some of them went on puberty blockers, far more of them went on hormones. I think it was, um, I want to say 82% of the kids who went on any medicine went on hormones, 18% went on blockers. And then a year out, they, you know, they had all this data. Um, this was, I think, a cohort that passed through around 2017. Uh, so they published a study touting the fact that this was my read, and, and uh, you'll link to my newsletter. I think it's pretty clear this is what they were claiming, that uh, kids who went on gender-affirming medicine saw 
significant, strikingly significant improvements to their mental health. Yeah. And so by, you know, both in reading the article and as you're saying in the, the um, coverage of it, of the media, this seems pretty simple, cut and dry. Yeah. One reading this would interpret that, you know, this exact intervention caused improvements in, in mental health. But um, as you point out, what are some of the, what are some of the, the problems with, with, with um, making this, this claim here? Yeah. I mean, the biggest problem is it just, it didn't happen. The, um, the kids who went on puberty blockers or hormones over time, if you compare basically the kids who arrived when they arrived at the clinic at intake, their rates of uh, depression and suicidality and anxiety, and, and we'll get into some of the methodological issues here because there's a lot of them. If you compare their rates at the start of the study and at the end of the study, they just didn't improve. There was no sign of statistically significant improvement. You have to read the study closely to even figure this out. But what the researchers did was they used a specific uh, statistical modeling technique to compare the kids who went on hormones to the kids who didn't go on hormones. And they said the kids who did not go on hormones got worse. Well, like, they didn't even say the second part. They told me the kids who did go on hormones stayed the same. So their already troubled level of mental health didn't improve. This other group of kids got worse, which to me is already a much weaker claim than the medicine improved the kids' mental health because there's some areas in medicine where keeping someone stable is okay. I mean, I, I use the example of someone with stage four cancer, it's considered a victory if you keep their tumors at the same size and there's no progression. Here, uh, if these kids are highly suicidal and depressed as the researchers claim, you would think you're giving them these medications to improve the situation. The situation didn't improve. So right off the bat, to me, if, if medicine, if medical research is functioning well, the researchers should have zoomed in on that a little bit and been like, well, I thought we were giving these kids medicine to improve their mental health. It didn't improve. Why is that? But they don't, not only do they not ask that question, they don't really communicate clearly that that's what happened. You have to go to a, to a supplemental e-table three to even see that. Um, so instead, they, in, in my view, contrived a way to show that the treatments, quote unquote, worked when by the normal standards of how you would measure something like this, uh, they, I don't think they did in this study. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, I mean, the fact that this, this type of intervention can, you know, perhaps have a preventative effect on further deterioration of mental health is important. Um, but to, to say that their, you know, mental health improved is you know, another type of claim. And it's really important just to be, you know, very clear about what we're finding here. Um, I think, you know, I know I, I've read your, your writing on this topic, and I think we're both coming from a place where we want, genuinely want to see these, you know, these interventions work. Um, we want to see kids' mental health improve, um, but we want to also have, be clear about what the, the data shows and understand if there are kids that don't improve on these interventions. And if there's not, you know, transparency about that because of the way that this is covered um, and communicated, that could potentially cause um, unintended consequences for, for some kids. And we should have an honest conversation about that. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's as simple as whether the main divide among the subset of people who are in favor of youth medical transition, the divide is between those who view this as proven science and those who think that there's still major questions about the efficacies of these treatments. And the latter view, which is uh, increasingly my view, um, it's increasingly my view because every like 
major European body that has looked into this has found that. Not that like we should ban the treatments like some red states are trying to do, but that there's major, we don't have a body of evidence. These are, these are, this use case for puberty blockers is new and giving hormones to sometimes kids as young as 12 or 13, although more often it's 14 or 15 in the States, that's new. And, and there isn't good data. We're sort of flying blind medically. So I think what inspired me to take this deep dive into the study is like, you're in my view, badly misrepresenting a, a medical question that really hasn't been answered yet and needs to be treated with a lot of, of care. Yeah. Why do you think, and we, we may be getting off track, I definitely want to dive into a little bit more of the methodological issues, but why do you think there's so much of a pressure right now to, um, to present a particular narrative or a particular story um, from even, you know, scientists? Part of it is surely a reaction to the, the right-wing attempts to just ban these treatments and to go after trans people in other ways, you know, including luckily bathroom bills aren't as popular these days, but that, that was a big story in North Carolina, uh, which luckily failed. That's part of it. Uh, I think there's this sort of siege mentality because there are conservative legislators trying to, in my view, sort of use a rocket launcher on a mosquito here and, and totally ban treatments that should not be banned. And they, if, if they're banned, they should be banned by medical bodies, not right-wing or left-wing for that matter, state legislators. Um, so I think part of the pressures from that, I, I will say I've been covering this issue off and on for, God, about five years now. And it's always been the case that there's a lot of pressure to say, to tell these simple, straightforward stories of, of kids who um, are, are prevented from suffering by accessing these treatments. And if they don't access the treatments, the suffering will be profound. And I, I think that is sometimes true. I think for some kids, it's true. I also think that there's a growing number of reasons to think that it's a little bit more complicated than as straightforward as like you have, uh, I don't know enough about medicine, you have some disease, you know, gender dysphoria, and you take a thing that cures that disease. This is a little bit more complicated than that. And there's some people who don't think they're well served by these treatments. And, and just at the end of the day, we, we don't have the evidence and we desperately need better evidence. So when you see when you see this paltry evidence pile, just a small handful of studies, every new study published is going to have outsized impact because we don't have a lot of other research to go on, especially in an American context. So I think that's why it's particularly bad for a study to, to be this badly misrepresented. I, I know that a year or two years from now, this study will have been cited as proof, not proof, but evidence these treatments work by a lot of other medical journals. And that's how this sort of game of telephone happens and it's bad because we don't want it to be the case that 20 years from now we look down the road and just see that this evidence was was terrible and was not telling the story we thought it was telling yeah absolutely so i mean given what you just said um jesse you know um i'm just going to share kind of a little bit of what you know um i was hearing in the lecture the other day um and because i know that you know, someone and as someone in academia, I'm probably not the only one. And um, maybe we can kind of break this this down a little bit. But yeah. um, one one of the things was, you know, that there's very clear, unequivocal evidence that these interventions work. Um, so basically, um, without question, we should be going ahead and providing them. But, sorry, just so to give me the full context, this was what kind yeah. of lecture? Um, so so this was this was a presentation. Um, 
where we had a guest speaker come and talk about um, their work in one of the um, gender clinics. Okay, and and when they say that um, unequivocal evidence these treatments work, meaning puberty blockers and hormones for minors? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, horrible. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to use a term like horrible because there's there's more horrible things in the world. And, and it's always like, well, you think that's horrible. People are trying to ban it, which is also horrible. But that, that's a complete exaggeration of the evidence. And if you don't believe me, you can, you can um, the UK, Finland, and Sweden have all, or bodies within those countries have all published stuff basically saying the evidence base is, is, is crap frankly. And I think part of what's happening, unfortunately, is that there are a number of um, doctors and medical students and journalists who are sort of, when they learn about this issue, um, this risk getting too in the weeds, but I think it's similar what, uh, related to what you're saying. If you're a journalist and you're fresh to this issue, you'll be uh, told to go to some activist organization or another, and they will hook you up with contacts to quote unquote, educate you about this issue. They will send you material. That's fine. That's what activist groups do. But I've seen what they tell people and what they tell people is an exaggeration of the evidence. This isn't sinister or new. Like there's always been this unsteady relationship between science and activism and they overlap and they need one another and it's complicated. But to have someone coming in to a major university and saying we have unequivocal evidence these treatments work, which is um, contradicts like just about everything that's been found by folks who have looked carefully at this question and done sort of systematic reviews of the evidence that that really disturbs me because I don't want this misinformation spreading among, you know, doctors and PhDs. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, just, just to be clear, I, I definitely don't want to, you know, misrepresent or misquote. I don't think, you know, she's said so plainly unequivocal, but that was the, that was definitely the implication and the suggestion is that, Hey, these, these treatments work. We shouldn't be questioning them. There's no mention at all of any data that might be contradictory or, or flawed or anything like that. Yeah. And I, I think you point to, you know, um, something really important is that this isn't <laughs> anything that's um, per- probably not anything that's even intentionally done or malicious in any way. I think a lot of people, you know, hear these things um, and they probably haven't done a deep dive into the literature. Um, and so we're just, and we're passing, passing along what we've learned. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not malicious. It's the opposite. I mean, it's it from their point of view, I think they, uh, you know, including the folks who wrote this paper, I critique, they, they genuinely think they're saving kids' lives, which is obviously a good thing to want to do. I think we also maybe have some historical examples of people who thought they were saving kids' lives who, who didn't help or who were a little bit closed-minded about it. So that's, yeah, I'm not, I don't like the sort of conspiracy theories that like there's something particularly bad about like obviously trans people or, or trans medicine researchers. I think there's some human error going on here. And you could, there's been plenty of other examples of this sort of thing of, of sort of a diagnosis du jour and, and maybe oversimplified research. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book about half-baked behavioral science and TED talks and the way uh, scientific complexity gets stripped from, you know, from university press releases, basically. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm coming from the same perspective here. And I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And on all of these really um, inflammatory subjects, um, where there's a lot of debate on both sides, I truly 
genuinely think that people on both sides think that they're doing good. I don't think anyone's a malicious actor. We're all doing our best. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, part of why, you know, part of why I was so excited to have this conversation, hopefully we'll get into this, is to kind of break down a little bit the psychological factors that um, are at play in and being um, so attached to a certain ideology, let's say. Another thing that um, sort of came up, I guess the, the suggestion was that, okay, so we, you know, provide these interventions in any case that they might not work. It's completely due to, you know, social factors, you know, stigma and that sort of thing, which transphobia, yeah. transphobia, which clearly exists, but again, no mention of mental health factors, or even the fact that um, poor mental health, especially history of trauma might be contributing to these things in the first place. And again, I mean, this is, you know, what worries me is, is just that, you know, that kids are not that this could potentially cause unintended harm and that they're not going to actually get treatment for things that. Yeah. So, so I think the general pattern among some clinicians is there's this really fraught, but important debate. Um, so a kid shows up at a gender clinic, they have gender dysphoria where they say they do. They also have depression and anxiety, maybe sometimes, uh, an eating disorder. Um, the question of what's causing what is really complicated. What I'm worried is happening in some cases. And I, I think there's maybe one study out of Finland that produced this general pattern of results. But again, the research is so thin, I can't really point to research. I think what's happening is clinicians are overlooking those other factors and not realizing that. I think if you have really bad depression or anxiety or um, an eating disorder that, and you're 14 or 15, I think it's pretty clear that could contribute to questions about your gender or to gender dysphoria. I think it's a really complicated fog of factors, but I think because there isn't like sufficient diagnosis going on, it might be some kids are being put on these treatments. I don't know how many, some kids are being put on these treatments without proper care um, being put into their other mental health problems. And this to the credit of the researchers who wrote the adolescent chapter or the draft chapter of the upcoming standards of care, for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, they, they, they emphasize this. They emphasize the need for assessment. Um, that's what I'm worried is going on. And that, that would maybe explain some of the results that show that kids who go on these treatments don't really improve. Cause like, you're not, you're not really treating the whole kid. You're treating gender concerns as like the only thing causing anything else. You wrote, Jesse, um, in the Atlantic article in 2018 about, you know, it's the cases of some people who have detransitioned. And this seems like a small minority of people who do transition. But um, can you tell us a little bit about what you found and any estimate as to, you know, what percentage of folks actually do detransition? Yeah, I mean, in America, no one knows how many detransition. And there's a lot of um, fake statistics being thrown around on this. So it might be useful for people to just understand why they're fake statistics. The the two things people do is um, they'll, they'll, so there's this one poster presented in the UK. So already that's a very different context and a gender clinic reached, looked back at patient files and tried to find text corresponding to words like regret or detransition. I, I forget exactly what they used. Um, setting aside the fact that I'm not sure this was ever published anywhere. It was just a poster if you talk to detransitioners, they'll tell you they often don't go back to their clinic. So if your method of finding detransitioners is to find folks who are still in contact with a gender clinic, 
that's not that's not going to work because they often don't feel they were treated well and they leave um, and, and they fall out of contact with the clinic. So we don't we have no idea how many detransitioners there are in the U.S. I, I would argue that in the last five, six years, both the number of kids in gender clinics has skyrocketed. And I think diagnostic processes have changed a lot. People are really turning away from so-called gatekeeping. Um, you know, like the example I just gave of a kid who comes in with a lot of different conditions, there's a subset of clinicians who will wave them through and, and move them onto puberty blockers and hormones uh, and not really pay sufficient care to their other mental health problems because that's seen as pathologizing or gatekeeping. So I think that's sort of part of what's going on. The, the other problem is people will throw around these low regret statistics about these surgeries or hormones in adults that often ignore like pretty high loss to follow up. Um, I'm, I'm aware of one study. I could send you a link after. I think one of the biggest attempts to like reach out to folks who'd had surgery and, and gave their satisfaction had a loss to follow up rate of like 40%. Um, they do consistently find that the kids, that ki kids, adults, who go on hormones and surgeries have lo low regret rates, but there is that loss to follow up rate that I think often goes ignored. Sure. Yeah. Um, this, this might bring us back, you know, to help close the loop on the research article we started talking about. One of the um, issues that you bring up in the article is that there, there was a high attrition rate of kids who dropped out, especially towards the end of the study. And particularly when they're comparing groups, the group that didn't receive any intervention, um, there was a, a low dropout rate. Can you talk a little bit about, about what you yeah, it, it was sort of weird. There were uh, four waves of data collection and um, about 104 kids in the study. 20 dropped out between the baseline and three-month waves. Then I think no one dropped out between waves two and three. And then another 20 dropped out between three and four. It wasn't just it, it, the bigger issue to me than the attrition rate was almost all the attrition was among the kids who didn't go on hormones which or blockers, which right away suggests some sort of difference between the groups. So um, I want to say 80% of the kids in the study who dropped out were in the group that didn't receive treatment. So by 12 months, there were seven kids left in the no treatment group, six of whom provided information about their mental health. So right off the bat, I don't think you can publish a study claiming to have found anything uh, over 12 months when your non-treatment group has dwindled to six or seven kids 12 months out. And the researchers, among a lot of other statistics they don't provide and information they don't provide, they don't, they don't even speculate what could have <coughs> excuse me, caused kids to end up in the gender-affirming medicine group versus the no-gam group versus dropping out. It's just this, this weird elephant in the room they don't even mention. So my argument in the piece was like, you just can't compare these groups. It, there's all sorts of reasons why you could have this pattern of results the researchers seem to think make a causal argument that the reason the mental health of the no medicine kids dipped is because they didn't have access to medicine. Uh, that could just as easily flow in the other direction where they didn't get medicine because their mental health wasn't good enough because some clinicians, that, that, that's sort of technically the guidelines. If a kid has uncontrolled mental health issues, you probably shouldn't put them on hormones. But, but that's just one hypothesis. There's many other reasons this could have happened. Um, so I just thought it was like, frankly, irresponsible uh, to ignore all these issues and to not, not even provide basic data on the actual scores the kids got on 
mental health measures. They, they use this bucket system instead. And they use this very crude measure where a kid either, they basically dichotomized all their variables. So kids either did or didn't have quote, moderate or severe depression or quote, moderate or severe anxiety with, with no information about average scores, about change over time. I, I, it came across like they were trying to, they sort of threw everything at the wall that they could and they, they found a way to show that these studies work sort of, but I don't know, it's 2022 and we're well aware of the replication crisis. How are you not going to just report your basic stats? I, don't, I didn't understand that. Sure. Yeah. In other words, I mean, you know, it might have they might have been better off kind of leaving those um, measure the measures or variables on a continuum basis um, yeah. versus dichotomizing them into two different groups. And 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 I think there, there's there's often I, this is a little above my pay grade. There's often legitimate reasons to dichotomize, but in this study, um, you know, it's a uh, it's 27 point depression scale. A kid who goes from a 10 out of 27 to nine would be considered to have improved, to have gone from uh, moderately or severely depressed to not moderately, severely depressed. Kid who goes from a 24 to a 13, an 11 point drop, which is huge, would not be considered to have improved. Like that's how crude a measure it was. I I, I just, I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from other researchers if there's any justification for not also including information about the continuous measures and and just averages, basically. There's no, you you can look through the entire study which includes a lot of sort of tangential tables and the supplemental materials and not even know the average um, PHQ, uh, what's it, the depression. PHQ-9. Yeah, yeah. PHQ-9. Um, it's just absent. It's nowhere to be found, which I found surprising. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's probably a little bit above my pay grade as well, more of a clinician than a researcher, but I can say that these measures, uh, the PHQ-9 and the GAT-7, um, we use them a lot frequently in clinical work, but as far as um, measuring outcomes in a study, they're, as you know, they're really short, brief, they're really more of screeners and definitely not yeah. the standard by which you can measure, um, you know, clinical changes and um, yeah. So, so, I mean, and I, and, you know, there's reasons why it's easier to give a kid a survey than it is to like give them a full mental health workup. And there's all these limitations uh, researchers are working with. And I recognize that. And I'm glad these guys ran this study because this is the sort of study we should be running, but um, I, I don't, I don't know why they collected all this data and then didn't report it anywhere. Uh, and I, I should add, they, <coughs> excuse me, I, I asked for the raw data to um, have someone who is better at stats than me look over it. And the co-author of the study who, who was listed as responsible for the data initially told me we included it in the supplementals, you know, for transparency's sake, I looked in the supplementals. It wasn't there. I asked her, she cut off all contact. So that's not, that's not good scientific mm -hmm. transparency. And it doesn't really uh, reflect well on the researchers, frankly, given how much basic information I could not find in the paper or the supplementals. In, in your view, um, obviously we're seeing you know, growing polarization, but like, how did we get here? What are the psychological mechanisms at play that um, are allowing us to, to be so compelled by to, to follow a certain narrative and not being able to kind of step outside of our box a little bit? I, I'm not sure there's an answer here that wouldn't maybe come across as like too obvious in retrospect, but I, I just think there's, it's sort of the way in groups work. Like I, I'm a liberal journalist and there's a lot of pressure within liberal journalism to show that you're, you're, you know, helping trans kids. You're on the right side of that debate within medicine. I think the same norms prevail where you're basically, you're just going to have a, a much worse time coming across as skeptical of these treatments or having questions about them. than you will um, sort of celebrating them. 
And this is just, this is the nature of human social groups. We develop norms, we develop beliefs. Individual belief is sort of a mix of what you really feel and what your group expects you to feel. I think those both tie into the question of what we say publicly versus what we say privately. Privately, there's a lot of sort of good Obama voting liberals have questions about these treatments. And I think the social stigma in, in circles like ours against asking these questions has slowed down the conversation in the US because I, I think we're so hyper-polarized and any question is seen as being give, giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which because um, I wrote this 2018 Atlantic article that was by no means against child transition and included kids who'd happily transition. That That's often um, people tell me I'm responsible for you know the policy in Texas or these other red state laws. That's how intense things are. And it's hard to have like a scientific conversation um, in such a, an intense environment. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. And, and I feel there's a lot of traumatized trans people who have not been treated well by the medical uh, establishment. And there's a lot of really terrible stories of, of them sort of having to jump through hoops to get treatments they want and need. And that's horrible. And I think it contributes to mistrust. So um, yeah, that would be my sort of short gloss on what's going on. I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's great. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think people are coming in, as you're saying, with, with good intent, people are trying to help people are yeah. trying to do good for, um, <clears throat> you know, to serve communities that are underrepresented or, or marginalized, and we're all doing our best to help. Um, sometimes, you know, what we observe is that our, even despite our best intentions, um, our efforts can have backlash when people do have, you know, questions. So there's not conversation there. The more that there's a division or, or a gap, the more the other side wants to kind of, um, kind of one up. And you know, now we're seeing these bills created in in Florida and Texas and other places. And um, is that the way you see it as well? As like almost kind of like one upping each other and like both, you know let's just say on the left, for example, we're trying really, really hard to serve these, these communities, but it almost seems like the more we push, the more we try to serve these communities, the more backlash there is. And then there's just this game. It's just like tit for tat. Well, you know, you're doing this. Okay. Well now we're going to introduce this bill and I don't want to put the blame. You know, I don't want to say that, um, that people on the, on the left or, you know, far left are to blame for these things, but just for us to step back and realize that, um, maybe, you know, our morals and our values are important, but we also need to recognize like the functional consequences of what we're doing. What's, what's the, actually the practical outcome. And, and at the end of the day, does that end up serving the group that we're trying to serve because of all this backlash that it creates in our society? Yeah. I mean, I struggle a lot with the backlash question. I, I, I think probably one of the first political issues I wrote about was like the gay marriage fight in the in the early 2000s. And I think conservative legislators don't need an excuse to push conservative legislation. Um, and I think I do think there's like an arms race where the two sides feed off of each other and extremists in particular feed off each other because you're especially online you're much more likely to encounter the crazies than the vast majority of people who are have moderate views so I'm torn on the backlash question what I know for sure happens or I shouldn't say for sure I'm I'm very confident that what happens is 
parents who have questions about these medical treatments for their own kids, because there are more and more kids coming out as trans, they'll go online and they'll seek resources. And the resources they find will tell them they're a bigot if they have any questions about their kids going on blockers or hormones, and their kids will kill themselves if they don't go on blockers or hormones, which is um, not a good approach to this and is a real oversimplification of suicide. I think that absolutely drives parents to sort of more quote unquote heterodox or conservative sources of information. And I think if you want them to trust mainstream sources of information, um, like your medical school or whatever, you need to give accurate, nuanced, up-to-date information. So when I see article after article about this debate that pretends none of the stuff that's happened in Europe in the last few years has happened, which is again, country after country, well, two countries scaling back these treatments and a pretty fevered debate about it in the UK that included a, a major evidence review finding the evidence sucked. That worries me because I, I don't think parents are stupid and I don't think they're going to go along with this if they don't feel like they're getting good information. And even setting aside the question of backlash in politics, they deserve good information. Everyone deserves good med medical information. So that, that's the, the backlash thing I'm most worried about. I, I think it's hard to know would we have these bills if there hadn't been a little bit of excess among some progressives? I don't know. I, maybe, maybe not. It's hard. I mean, it, it almost just seems like, you know, we have a hard time trusting people with, um, with information and to provide, you know, complexities and, and subtleties in the information for them to make informed decisions based on that. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you um, kind of on this topic about the Florida legislature. Um, um, you're a great person to ask because you always provide a balanced view, uh, at least in my experience on everything. And my, my experience um, listening and, and reading you has basically been, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I join you in, in bringing, you know, skepticism and, and concern about certain <coughs> things that might be happening on the far left. But then as soon as I feel you know, self-righteous about that, or maybe titillated by an idea on the opposite side, and maybe a conservative idea that is, you know, is seems very appealing. Then you'll also bring me back to down to earth there too, and tell me how how stupid or dumb that is. So, um, you do a really nice job of of really bringing people down to earth on both sides. Um, Thank you. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if on um, if you could just, you know, kind of as far as you understand, let us know kind of what this bill is about and, and give us a, a take on it. <laughs> Wait, how, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a, a super expert. I, I, there's a guy named Jeffrey Sachs who uh, does work for PEN America. He's a scholar in Canada who, who's good on this and I think an honest broker. But uh, I just think it's a very poorly written bill that if you read it literally, like you could break the law by telling a second grader what straight marriage is, that men usually marry women because it's written in a way where you're banning basically any instruction about any instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity in K through three settings. So I, I just think it's, it's poorly written. And I think there's like a subset of trainings for kids about gender that I don't like, because I think they're not, I think they're not developmentally appropriate. I think some of them are for kindergartners and, and kindergartners are sort of just coming to understand what gender is. And that's maybe not the age where you want to give them these fairly complex and to me scientifically questionable ideas about the nature of gender identity. So if there was a very narrowly written bill that said like, we don't wanna give kids these trainings, I think I'd roll my eyes and, and question whether state legislatures should be micromanaging this much, but I wouldn't really be against it. 
this bill to me is easy to be against because because even if you have questions about like trainings for kids on sex and gender, it doesn't doesn't really target them. It's just much too broad. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, we've we've talked a lot about kind of some of the, the problems of division and the forces um, that are pulling us apart. But this might be too too broad of a question. But um, w- what do we do in your view? Let's say you you do have um, a voice and a platform, but what is your recommendation for, for people? How can we help to add a little bit more of the nuance to the conversation that we're having and be more honest as, you know, consumers or producers of science and, and information? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very pessimistic. I, I think we're a little bit screwed and I think things are going to keep fracturing off into subcommunities and we're, we're, at a point where, where this could be from Spain, but there's other folks, folks who have the same political beliefs as I do, same cultural references who have completely different views of the world and of basic events and of basic questions. So that, that sort of epistemic fracturing worries me. I, I guess I would just, uh, the sort of concept of pluralistic ignorance, I think is very important and can help pull us out of this. And that's just the idea that um, people think that everyone else thinks something, but they might not think that thing. The, the DMs and emails I get on this issue and others, uh, the gender, youth gender medicine, are completely different from what you see on Twitter. And any platform that rewards loudness and certainty and bullying is not, you're not going to find like people's actual views there. You're going to find people's actual views sort of in the shadows, as it were. So I, I still don't think the average American is like radical or crazy. Uh, I think we're giving more and more tools to the radical crazy people to dominate the conversation that's dangerous. And the best thing we can do is realize that like the average person, you could probably sit down and have a reasonable disagreement with them, even if they're like across some divide from you. Um, so I think we should just sort of promote that to the extent possible. And, and I think decision makers, whether administrators or deans of a medical school or the people who run newsrooms should understand that Twitter is not the real world and that the sort of deranged discourse you see there does not reflect people's, you know, the average person's political views. And I think we should write and think more about, you know, the so-called median American than, than again, the most radical types. Yeah. Well said. Jesse, is there anything that um, we haven't covered or anything else that you wanted to, to say for today? No, I mean, I, I, do, I do want to just emphasize that, like when I say the, the evidence on the youth gender medicine is uh, paltry, I think that's more there haven't been enough studies than that there's been like big studies with, with no result. It's, re, it's mostly we just need more studies. Like there's so few of them, you can't point to that many impressive ones that either show the treatments work or don't. But I, I don't want people to think that I'm implying there's this huge pile of no results that people are ignoring. There's a handful of them and there's a handful of promising results, but we, we just desperately need more data. And uh, American clinics in particular have lagged uh, on providing any data. So, I mean, I'm glad the folks in Seattle publishes. They just should have been more transparent about what they found. Sure. Thank you so much for your time today, Jesse. Um, I really appreciate it. I always appreciate, um, as I said, reading and listening to you. And I'm a newly um, subscribed fan of your podcast with Katie Herzog. And you guys are wonderful and have great chemistry and are very funny together. So um, I will look forward to continuing to, to follow you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much again for listening. Remember that subscribing, 
rating and reviewing the podcast is very much appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.